into this. Uh, I'm speaking into this. Okay. That's, that's the recorder. Okay. Hang on a sec. Oh. Can you, you can hear me okay probably without um, any other device, right? Um, nice to be in Melbourne. I always love coming to Melbourne and, um, and it's great to have this work here. I thought I'd talk with you a little bit about how um, my thinking around making this work um, why it's in this form and as I go if you have questions please just ask me because we're a small enough group and, and maybe that's the best way to do it um, I um, wanted to talk first about you know really why, why we're in a dome here and why it's called Rekindling Venus um, I began I, I did a work in 2001 which was based on Coral is called Hold Vessel One, and it showed. So do you want? Do you want? What do you want me to hold? Oh, do both. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm multitasking with the technology. Um, so I did a work in that was at Acme. It was actually commissioned for the very first exhibition at Acme when it opened, called Hold Vessel One. It was small glass bowls that you held in your hands, and you caught imagery from coral reefs as well as astronomical imagery in, in, in your hands, in these small bowls. Um, Ross Gibson, who commissioned that work, asked me to think of a couple of works. And while that work was made in 2001, these small bowls, I also envisaged another work where the same imagery would be above you. So that was 2001. And this work was made in 2012. So what, I guess what I want to say is I've been thinking about this for a very long time. And even way back then, I was working with scientists, a marine biologist in particular, called Dr. Anya Sali, who I still work with. Her um, main focus in terms of her work is to understand the fluorescent proteins in corals. And I'll talk a little bit more about them later. So I, I met Anya in 2000, and we've worked together since. At the same time, I was spending time with astronomers, and in particular, a really incredible astronomical photographer called David Malin, who, if you know anything about astronomy, you will know something about him, because he developed a form of um, photography for astronomy pre-digital using plates, glass plates, that enabled us for the very first time to see the colour of stars as we would see them if our eyes were sensitive enough to view light from that distance. So I spent some time in a residency with David Malin and he talked to me about astronomy I had taken to him a couple of little tiny images. One, which was of the birth of a star. It was one of his images. And the other, which was a coral spawning image. I showed David Malin and Anya Sali these two images. And for me, apart from scale, they looked so alike that I was amazed. And I wanted to show them both to specialists who worked in those areas. When I show them to Anya, 
she talked to me about this capacity corals have to fluoresce. And when I showed them to David Malin, he handed me another photograph of his. Well, I don't even know if it was his. It was a photograph of a galaxy, of the Milky Way galaxy. He, was, he said to me as I was leaving, take a photo of home with you. And he handed me a photograph of a galaxy. He said, we have messed up this planet so much. We don't deserve to imagine we could go anywhere else and do the same thing. We have to protect this one here. He told me there was a relationship between these two images I'd shown him, from the reef and from the stars. And he said, oh, suddenly something's happening. And he said, um, the relationship is the observation of the transit of Venus. And he told me the story that links to this work and why it was released and when it was released. So some of you will know this, but I'm going to tell you anyway in case you don't. He told me that James Cook's endeavour was commissioned, first of all, to observe the transit of, of Venus in Tahiti. And then Cook had on the endeavour a sort of secret mission which was held in an envelope from the king. It was given to him once he'd completed his first mission. So once Cook and his astronomer, Charles Green, who was on board the ship, had observed the transit of Venus from Tahiti, Cook opened this second envelope which said, now go in search of the Great Southland. And that's the reason that Cook's endeavour travelled up the east coast of Australia around the period of 1769, the 1770, because the transit of Venus in Tahiti was in 1769. Now, transit of Venus occurs in pairs eight years apart, so there was one in 1761 and one in 1769, and there's not another for 120-something years. The desire to view that astronomical event was set in motion by Edmund Halley of Halley's Comet fame. The kind of great uh, quizzical scientific question of the age of, of that age was what is the exact size of our solar system? That is, how far is Earth from this planet? It's like it was like uh, we knew there was Perth and there was Sydney, but you would not know how far between each other they are. So there was like, there's this reference point and there's this reference point, but we have no idea what is the expanse in between. And the goal was to decipher that. It was to come to an understanding of what was called the astronomical unit. The astronomical unit would tell us what is the exact size of what David Mallon called our home, this solar system. And Halley was trying to solve that same problem. And he fathomed that if we could watch one planet in relation to, say, the sun, 
we would be able to know the size of one thing against another and that would tell us distance and this calculation could be made. But because the Earth is round, you would have to calculate for that bend. So you would have to send ships across the whole of the Earth and do their calculations and then bring that knowledge back together. This is in the 1700s. And Halley said, I think this is the solution, but I'm not going to live to see the next transit of Venus. So he wrote a letter to the royal um, astronomers and said, I'm beseeching you. When the time comes, I won't be here. Send ships to the four corners of the earth so that we can understand this thing, which is about our home. And that's exactly what happened. At the time of the 1761 and 1769 transit, a hundred and something ships, I think it was about 160 ships for that first transit, went from places all over the world to observe. And we know to travel some of those distances took years. Countries who were at war with one another, for example, England had been at war with France and Cook's ship was sent to Tahiti, a French territory. But the French said, this is an undertaking that is to the benefit of all humanity. So we will allow British ship into French territory to observe this event. That moment in 1761 and 1769 is known as the first attempt at global scientific cooperation. And it's the reason Cook's ship foundered on the coral reef heading up the east coast at Wreck Bay. So when I was thinking of this work, I decided to release it in time with the transit of Venus in 2012. And none of us in this room, I don't think, although no, maybe it's possible, we'll, we'll see the next one in a hundred and what, 16 years. So I wanted to sh send this work like little tiny ships into digital planetariums around the world. Those very places that are generally show us this vastness uh, of stars, of solar systems and of galaxies and instead to place us in relation to a coral reef in the same position of awe to make us feel small in relation to this community and to spend 22 minutes really ideally lying on the ground there as though you have fallen to the seafloor looking upward at this incredible, powerful, extraordinarily complex ecosystem that is a coral reef. In 2001, 2000-ish, when I met Anya and the marine biologist she was working with, when, I, when they would talk to me about coral, they were distressed and anxious. This many years later, they have gone into a kind of scientific panic. And in the meantime, these corals are struggling to adapt 
to the many stresses that are placed on them. And so in this section, there's a couple of sections I'd love you to look at, but the section that relates most distinctly to Anya's work, which I want to tell you a little bit about, is this section that begins here where you start to see the fluorescence in the anemones and in the coral. Um, So maybe we'll play that bit and then I'll come back and tell you what it is she's studying. Oh, yeah, do you want to maybe put the music up and you can... So some of these are shot... Yeah, stand up and if you can't or... if you want. I, I, I probably, oh, is it? Oh, I'm not sure. That can't be right. <laughs> this is a coral. Look, it's, it's swallowing a fish in its mouth. Yeah. It's a fish, a little fish in there. If you wave food around, it opens its mouth. Now this is some of Anya's imagery, um, microscopic imagery of coral. So see, that was a little fish was in the first one. So you can see the fluorescence. You look in these greens and these reds that you can only see under certain uh, light. This is nano CT scanning. So you know how we get scans of our body? This is nano scanning of, of coralites and shells. So it's showing you structurally how a shell builds itself. So the importance of the fluorescence which you saw there um, that Annie has been studying for all these years is her so her research in around about 2000 she wrote a paper um, with some of her college, with, with colleagues which showed that corals that had this capacity to fluoresce and oh we might pause that and not all corals do um, maybe just go back a little bit to the black would be great um, not all corals can fluoresce so some corals have a property that allows them to fluoresce um, Those corals that are able to fluoresce, she found with her colleagues, they survive the bleaching events 
better than corals that don't fluoresce. Now, this was an unusual and hard to understand um, discovery. Fluorescence is not like bioluminescence. Um, bioluminescence is, is the, the ability for any animal to chemically create light. Fluorescence is the absorption of light and re-emission of light in another wavelength. So bioluminescence, like a firefly, is a bioluminescent creature. It, it, has, it's chemi it has a chemical ability to create light. But fluorescence is the ab absorption of light and re-emission of light at a different wavelength. So Anya started to look at why are those corals that are able to fluoresce better able to adapt to a bleaching event? Bleaching, which you've heard about a lot this year and last year, is when... Um, is this okay to talk about the, the, the science behind the work? Oh, good. okay, good. Because this is what I think is really useful in understanding what you're looking at here. So a bleaching event, a coral is a kind of structure, coralite structure you've seen, that we recognise this kind of stone-like structure. Cook, Cook said he'd run into a stone garden. Um, that's, that's a structure built by the animal that is a coral. But a coral is actually an animal in a symbiotic relationship with an algae. The algae is called zooxanthellae. The zooxanthellae lives inside the coral structure and the, they need each other to survive. When a, the, the coral lives off the photosynthesis provided by the algae. If the algae is gone, the coral starves. Bleaching is when a coral structure is so stressed, it releases the algae. It releases back into the water column the very thing it needs to survive. Anya found that the corals that could fluoresce, channel light in different wavelengths, survive the bleaching events better than those that could not. And onward, she and her colleagues have found that they are managing the absorption of light, absorption, absorbing light and then re-emitting it is a way for them to channel light. That's because we know light and heat are one of the big problems for coral. So this is how clever a coral reef is, that they have evolved an ability to channel light in such a way as to protect themselves from exposure to increasing light and heat. What's happened this year is that there have been several bleaching events in close proximity. Last year, and this year, I think it's been three events. We've had bigger bleaching events on the Great Barrier Reef before. In the 1980s, there was a huge event. But we have never had this level of coral death. Generally, what happens is the coral will absorb the zooxanthellae back inside its skeleton. But that's not what's happening. We share 90% of our genes with coral. We get stressed, 
they get stressed. They react to stress in exactly the same way that we do. There's some papers that are coming out that are saying human resilience is going to be linked to coral resilience and human stress is linked to coral stress. So here's an example of that. You're a fisherman, fisherwoman living in, you know, somewhere in Malaysia and you don't, and you're losing your traditional ways and a big company comes along and says, take this cyanide and use the cyanide for fishing and we'll take all of this fish from you and here's a big wad of money for that. And because you're stressed about your family and looking after them, you say yes. And then you use cyanide or dynamite or something destructive on a reef. Then you cause stress on the reef. Then you cause more stress for your family because there'll be less fish. So you'll overfish, so then you'll help to weaken the reef, and then you'll weaken your own position. So this is a kind of interesting new way of thinking. Because when a coral is bleaching, it's stressing. And what's happened for them these last years is it's like your partner leaves you. That's difficult. But then you lose your job. And then a couple of months later, you have to move house. And then it's your birthday. You manage all those things, right? And then it's your birthday and your friend rings you up and forgets it's your birthday. So you scream at your friend. That's the result of accumulated stress. That's what's happening to corals right now on our reef. This exposure to heat, then more heat, without the ability to regather, it doesn't take much then for another bleaching event to happen. And at the same time, what's happening to them is they get the same thing that happens to us when we're stressed. Their immune system weakens when they're stressed. They're less able to fight off things that they would normally fight off when they have strong immunity. So then they get exposed to boring algae that drills holes into their skeleton. And then because of our changing climate system, there's a typhoon or a really big storm and their skeleton is weakened and the coral structures break. That's what's happening to them. And those stresses that they are feeling, I think, will happen to us and impact us. Coral is a community. They need every part of that community in health to survive. And this work is really just a portrait of that community. You see so many parts of the reef that are needed in order for this community to flourish. And I think you see through some of these scenes the drive in a coral community to survive. You see its frenzied ability to feed. You see its drive to protect itself. And you see the extraordinary colours and forms it's evolved. All which live in 
very close proximity to one another. Our southernmost reef is the Lord Howe Island Reef. Currently, all of those corals are gone. And we don't know if they'll come back. This work, for me, it's like an Alice in Wonderland sort of experience of wonderment and magic without anyone telling you anything about the species you're looking at. But hopefully it's immersive enough that you fall into a sort of trance, a coral trance, so that at the end of it, you feel yourself tossed out of that ocean. You have some emotional response to the possibility of losing that community. I thought for a long time about those messages, how to contain them and frame them in this work. And if you've watched it, you'll know there's two songs. One that starts the work, that's Gurumo singing. He's singing about um, the octopus. And the last song is written by a beautiful friend of mine, Anoni, who uh, used to be known as Anthony from Anthony and the Johnsons. And Anoni, so I went to Anoni and said, there's going to be no words <laughs> that many that people will understand. Probably there'll be just this portrait. But at the end, people have to carry away with them something of the sensation of loss. And so we might just play now the end moments in a minute of so you can hear Anoni's song and then I want to talk to you about that sort of framing. But the last section really of, of Coral really relates to exactly what David Malin had said to me about this planet, its beauty and our responsibility. But it is, when you're inside the work, really like moving through space. The footage shot under night by my incredible friend, um, cinematographer David Malin, who's been filming, um, he's been filming coral spawning since I think it was maybe 1990. He doesn't film on the Great Barrier Reef anymore because there's been too much diversity loss. He films in Papua New Guinea. So those people who've been watching these reefs for a long time have already seen enormous decline. But this end section that we all go to, you'll see this reminiscence of Halley, of exploration, of space, and of this underwater community. So we, we might go to that bit now. Oh yeah, we'll just end this little section. Can we skip along or not? Just a tiny bit? Yep. Oh, go back a little. You're, it's very... Yep, just leave it there. We're nearly there. Now, so what you're going to see is this coral spawning event. It only happens once a year on the Great Barrier Reef uh, after the full moon in November. 
So this is coral spawning. Can we hear it? Oh, we've lost. Oh, here we go. there so spawning the spawning event is um this once a year at least the cleverness of the coral is how does an animal that's fixed to the sea floor reproduce and get um genetic diversity so uh we scientists didn't know that the Great Barrier Reef had this what's called a mass spawning event until I think it was in 1989 when a group from James Cook University um, saw that event, was in the water and saw it. And, and uh, so that's this um, solution. Everything has sex on the same night. Everything on that reef. So, uh, but I mean uh, like species specific. So all of the brain coral send egg and sperm bundles 
up into the water on the same night, on the outer reef and on the same night in the inner reef. And that is how genetic diversity for corals on our reef has come about. That's why they are so diverse. And that's what I think David Malin tricked me to in my thinking because that event actually is driven by our solar system. It requires the heat of the summer in November and it occurs four or five days just after the full moon in November. So both the, the water temperature heated by the sun and the fullness of the moon in November triggers that event in the coral. That's the almost last, that's the last image you see in coral. It's in a big planetarium, it really is like being moving through stars. And that relationship, well, those two little photographs that I took with me to both Anya and David Malin, makes sense in that last moment. I, I did um, in the very in the hold work in the bowls they combined yeah but in this I really just wanted planetariums always show astronomical imagery I wanted to show the complexity j just from what we what is under the water and I wanted to try and create a relationship to these creatures who live in a different you know atmosphere to us but who are a complex community struggling to survive. Um, so there's this song that Anoni wrote and then when the work was done I wanted people to carry something away with them to remain connected to the reef. So the year before I'd built an augmented reality app through a series of posters, collected specimens collected on a research trip with Anya to Lord Howe Island. And those posters um, trigger an augmented reality experience. The app is called RKV. I think it's just called RKV. Oh, I'll have to send you the link. Um, and, but you can find it on the website. And you'll see the posters there. You can download the posters and print them. And then you hold up your phone in front of the posters. And you'll see that specimen descend back into the sea. And you'll see the fluorescent property of that specimen come alive. We also built a link to data from NOAA that pulled into that app that told you where coral reefs around the world right now were getting too stressed so that the app could connect you to data around what's, where corals today are suffering. Um, NOAA's recently upgraded their satellite system, so I have to upgrade the data system. But interestingly, when we built it, we had to be really careful about talking about bleaching. And if you read it, you'll see it says coral stress alert level one or coral stress alert level four. And we were advised legally to remove any statement about bleaching because those places, the resorts around the world where corals exist and people go for their holidays, don't want us to be saying, didn't want us to be saying then, this is what's happening. 
you might go there now and you're going to see a bleached reef. This process for me has been about not just thinking through how to pull that science visually into this work, how to create ongoing connection to the work, but importantly it's also been about who this work goes in front of. And I've done a lot of works about things I care about over the years and I started to feel like I was often breaching to the converted and putting my work in front of people who already cared about the same things I cared about. And I had a, a kind of breakthrough um, a few years ago when this coral work was invited by the World Economic Forum to its summer Davos in Tianjin. So um, the then new cultural leader of the World Economic Forum had seen the presentation at the American Museum of Natural History, wanted to bring it to Davos. Davos is very controlled around space. And instead could find the space to bring a quite big planetarium into the World Economic Forum in China. And then I had a moment which ch changed the trajectory of my work onward in terms of how I think about audience. Because there I was um, with this work in front of a particular audience that, to be honest, I had never imagined I would put my work in front of. The kind of decision makers, heads of state and heads of industry who attend that very mm, particular tent. And there was a moment, you wear these badges with the World Economic Forum and you, you kind of, they, you key in to everywhere. People, you, you know, everyone knows where everyone is at all times. Um, and there was a moment when um, the wonderful head of the cultural program said to me, the, the head of the largest company in the world is watching Coral. So not one of the largest companies in the world. The, the CEO of the largest company in the world was watching Coral. It's an oil and gas company. And this man has been to, I think, every talk that the World Economic Forum does on climate change, on ocean acidification. I mean, this is what's discussed there. And he emerged from that work. He didn't speak to me. He went to the head of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, and he said, clearly we have to do something about this issue. And nothing was said to him, and no information was given to him. And for me, that was like a curveball. My whole working life, I have never imagined that particular audience. But now I value them immensely. Because if I can place work where I'm not telling them something, but I'm evoking feeling, if they can emerge from that work and they care, and the next time he reads about what's happening on our reef at the moment, he has a connection. He also has the capacity to create far more change than I can dream of. So in the years since, I have happily responded to the invitations to return there and will continue to because there's something about this world that we operate in 
that is enormously effective. If largely what you're getting exposed to are statistics and information and this heart-opening capacity, the channels that can be opened by a work that is immersive and poetic but holds at its core an intent, I, I think it can change things. And that's my hope and that's why I continue to place my work in that forum. So now we should just listen to Anoni sing so you can hear, with that in mind, that audience listening to this song. I think that's it. Thank you so much. There is a reason that Lynette is in um, hot demand uh, from Sundance and the World Economic Forum. We are very, very grateful that you've come down from Sydney. Thank Thanks you so for much me. for coming down. And thank you for your work. And uh, thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you.